I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On this episode, we'll dive into one of the most uh, interesting Supreme Court cases of the year, American Legion versus American Humanist Association. The case centers around a constitutional challenge to a 40-foot cross that's part of a veterans memorial in Maryland. It was built by the American Legion after World War I, and it's being challenged by the American Humanist Association and Maryland citizens who say that it unconstitutionally promotes Christianity. It's being defended by a cross-partisan coalition uh, uh, of citizens and lawyers who say that it does not. And it's just a wonderful opportunity to explore the current state of the Establishment Clause and uh, the nature of religious freedom in America. We're so honored to be joined by advocates on both sides of this fascinating case, uh, and it's uh, just great to have them both. Ken Klukowski is representing the American Legion on behalf of First Liberty, where he's senior counsel and director of strategic affairs. He's also senior legal editor for Breitbart News Network and previously served as team leader for the constitutional rights team on the presidential transition team of President Trump. Ken, thank you so much for joining. Jeff, thanks so much for having us. And Monica Miller is counsel of record in this case for the American Humanist Association, where she is senior counsel. Since joining the American Humanist Council in 2012, uh, Monica Miller has litigated many Establishment Clause cases and is a frequent media commentator. Monica, it's an honor to have you as well. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Okay, Ken, let's jump right in. Uh, you can briefly state the facts, as Professor Kingsfield used to say, but the most interesting thing about this case is it was built on private land, but the land at some point uh, was bought by the state of Maryland, so it's now on public land. And then tell us what the lower court says. Uh, some of them applied the, the so-called lemon test, which we're going to talk a lot about, and others applied a, a, a test from a case called Van Orden. So tell us about how lower courts differed about whether or not this cross violates the Establishment Clause. Well, happy to. In in the 1920s, uh, the American Legion uh, worked with the families of 49 Maryland citizens from uh, a county in Maryland who had made the ultimate sacrifice in World War One. had actually lost their lives defending the country uh, overseas. And so a memorial was erected in the shape and configuration of a battlefield memorial that you can find even now in World War I cemeteries on European soil, that being a cross-shaped uh, memorial uh, with words emblazoned around the base like uh, courage and valor and a large bronze plaque that explains what this memorial is all about, who it is commemorating. And that was set up, uh, again, by a private organization on private land in the 1920s. Decades later, the state of Maryland was expanding a nearby highway, exercising the power of eminent domain, and in doing so, actually acquired title to the parcel of land where this memorial was located. Even so, the memorial went on for roughly another half century without anyone having any objections to it uh, until our friends on the other side of this case filed a lawsuit saying that the mere presence of this war memorial, this longstanding war memorial, 
uh, on land that had since become public land was in and of itself a violation of the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. That's the provision of the First Amendment that says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Uh, First Liberty Institute came in uh, representing the American Legion, who intervened in the case, and then we defended the war memorial in U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland. Uh, the case was assigned to uh, to a federal district judge who happened to be appointed by President Bill Clinton. And on summary judgment, that judge held that uh, the, the judge noted that there's some questions regarding exactly what the standard is required by the Establishment Clause, what test a court should apply as it's trying to determine whether the clause has been violated. But the judge determined that under any of the tests that the Supreme Court had used through the years, that this war memorial clearly passed constitutional muster under any of those tests, so much so that the judge did not even require oral argument, uh, just decided it on the briefs on summary judgment. Uh, That was the decision in the district court. It then went up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, uh, where the plaintiffs in the case prevailed by a two-to-one divided decision. Uh, Then the full en banc court, uh, all the judges of the Fourth Circuit, uh, declined to rehear the case by an eight-to-six split decision with several vigorous dissents. And now the U.S. Supreme Court has granted certiorari Uh, to hear the case possibly in February of 2019 uh, regarding whether this war memorial is permitted under the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Thank you for that wonderful uh, and clear summary, both of the facts and the lower court holdings. Uh, Monica, please add anything to the facts you think relevant, and then tell us more about the Fourth Circuit ruling, writing for the majority Judge Thacker applied uh, the so-called lemon test, which we're going to hear a lot about, and held that the cross satisfied the first prong of the lemon test because it was put up for secular purposes, maintaining safety in the intersection and honoring of World War I soldiers, but that it failed the second and third prongs of the lemon test because it endorsed Christianity in a manner that excluded other faiths. So disaggregate and tell us more about that decision and and whether you think it was right. Sure. So I'll start with the facts. Um, We actually see Uh, we have a different iteration of the facts. And one of those facts is that the cross actually commenced, uh, construction began on property that was owned by the town. And we know this because um, ultimately the cross, after it had been um, erected but hadn't been completed, the town actually transferred uh, the care of that land and the completion of the cross to the American Legion. And that was around, uh, that was in the mid, you know, I think it was 1923 about then. So the cross had actually already been um, put up and then the Legion just ha- happened to finish it. So it did start on public land. Um, and this is, again, this is a 40 foot Christian cross. It's concrete. It has um, s- some slight arching uh, at the, um, where the um, bars meet. Um, it doesn't look like the white small crosses in foreign battlefields. It's a dominating cross. It towers over one of the county's busiest intersections. Um, it's unavoidable to passersby. Um, and at the time that the reason, one of the reasons why it couldn't be completed, um, is because it competed for funding with a secular and non-religious war memorial that had just been put up at the county courthouse 
for World War I veterans of Prince George's County, the very same county the cross was in. And so many citizens didn't want to support the cross because they had just supported this other uh, non-religious war memorial. And that's uh, that goes into the fact that most World War I memorials did not use the cross. They usually consist of the secular doughboy. It's a sort of a bronze um, soldier statue, and that's the vastly common uh, display that's used for World War One. The cross, um, you know, is is a religious symbol. It honors Christian veterans, but no other um, war dead are honored by the cross other than Christians. Um, and and so when you have these federal cases that have challenged crosses, you see a landscape of courts consistently recognizing that the cross doesn't recognize other individuals. And so when it's used as a as a war memorial, it sends a you know sharp message of an exclusion to those who served our country, died for our country, but are not honored and practically forgotten when a cross is used to symbolize the war dead. And so there's about 30 federal cases. Um, that have uh, struck down crosses, either if they were, you know, used as a memorial or just, you know, used for some other purpose. And there's really only three outliers. So that kind of gives you the way that the courts have ruled. So the district court in this case that ruled, um, you know, that upheld the cross was actually kind of uh, in, it was in the minority of the courts that have addressed cross displays. So when, when we appealed up to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, we did prevail there. And the judge, uh, Judge Thacker, who wrote the opinion for the majority, said that, you know, using a cross to commemorate the war dead is exactly what I just said. It just doesn't commemorate all the war dead. And so it actually is, um, it's, it, just because it's a war memorial just doesn't make it secular. It actually just is using a religious symbol to um, accomplish that end. And so for that reason, it was um, violative of the Establishment Clause. Thank you so much for that. Ken, so let's uh, delve into the lemon test, uh, much criticized by some, defended by others. Justice Scalia once described it like the ghoul rising up from the end of a horror movie, which keeps coming back to be invoked by the court, even though uh, often justices don't like to cite it. But it was a case decided in 1971, and it had three prongs. It said that uh, in order not to violate the Establishment Clause, a statute must have a secular legislative purpose. Second, its primary or principal effect must be one that neither promotes nor inhibits religion. And third, that it must not foster excessive government entanglement with religion. And in this case, as Monica suggested, Judge Thacker said that although the cross was erected for a secular purpose, it represented excessive entanglement of the church and state for two reasons, because the commission spent money to maintain the cross and the cross overwhelmed its surrounding and contained no symbols of other religions, and Judge Thacker also noted that religious services have been held over the years at the site of the cross. So tell us about whether you think the cross fails the lemon test and, and whether you think the court should apply the lemon test or not, and if, and if not, what other tests should it apply? Uh, great questions. Uh, let me weigh in on both parts of that. I, I guess the, the only supplemental fact that I would add before we get there is also within the jurisdiction of the Fourth Circuit. You have Arlington National Cemetery, and there you will find a large 24-foot standalone cross, the Canadian Cross of Sacrifice, and another large standalone 13-foot cross, the Argonne Cross. Uh, those have been highlighted by the amicus briefs filed on behalf of, uh, of numerous and a bipartisan group of members of Congress who filed a brief in the case, and also a separate brief filed by the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars 
uh, also making the point that we do have these large standalone, these towering crosses as part of war memorials in other parts of the uh, jurisdiction of the Fourth Circuit, which certainly the only difference or perhaps the most prominent difference between this cross and those crosses is that uh, th- this, this cross is a little over 10 feet higher than the 24-foot cross, uh, uh, the Canadian Cross of Sacrifice. And so it's difficult to see how the Constitution would say that a 40-foot that a cross is unconstitutional, but a 24-foot cross is constitutional, how those additional feet somehow make a constitutional difference. Uh, and I think that perhaps the reason that now the constitutionality of Arlington is jeopardized by the Fourth Circuit's decision uh, might account for one of the reasons that the high court has decided to review this case. But getting into the actual facts, uh, I would start out by saying that we would contend that Lemon is actually not the right test to be applied here. There are three tests that the court could look at. We would say that the test that the court recently Uh, articulated and reinforced in Town of Greece versus Galloway is actually the correct rule for decision. But let me directly speak to what you asked regarding Lemon. We believe that the memorial is constitutional under any of the three tests that the court could look at, Town of Greece or a separate case, uh, Van Orden v. Perry, or the Lemon test, either under its original iteration or under its modern revision called the endorsement test. Regarding Lemon, you have this three-pronged test. We agree uh, with the reasoning of of the district court and the dissenting judges uh, in the uh, the Fourth Circuit proceeding, both at the panel stage and uh, before uh, before the en banc court that the principal effect of this is not to advance religion, that the principal effect, speaking of the second prong of lemon here, uh, is to commemorate those who made the ultimate sacrifice during war. We would also say for the, for the same reason that any degree of entanglement between the government and faith in that regard is not excessive, and that that's why the third uh, prong of lemon is not offended either, To put that in the modern context, where the Supreme Court in 1989, in the case County of Allegheny versus ACLU Greater Pittsburgh Chapter, revised Lemon, starting with the second prong, but really expanding out over the years to get to purpose and entanglement as well, say that the essentially that the Establishment Clause is violated under Lemon whenever a hypothetical reasonable observer, a person who is aware of community traditions, aware of history, aware of contextualizing facts, whether such a reasonable observer would come to the conclusion that the government is endorsing religion. Now, while it's possible that uh, that a hypersensitive observer might get such an impression, uh, we believe a reasonable observer, someone who understands how common of a symbol this is, uh, to commemorate war dead, including people of other faiths, by the way, and that's included in the record. We have uh, there are record citations to uh, people of other faiths, including, for example, the Jewish faith. Uh, some some of whom uh, have have been commemorated, for example, with tombstones with the Star of David, but others uh, who have voluntarily chosen and embraced. Uh, being represented by a symbol that was the same as all of their other uh, comrades in arms, that we would say that a a reasonable observer who is aware of how common it is for soldiers of various faiths or even no faith at all 
to be represented uh, by, by this symbol that, re- uh, that, uh, that resembles battlefield markers, including, for example, uh, soldiers of the Jewish faith, some of whom are commemorated with tombstones that feature the Star of David, but others, as the record shows in the amicus brief show in this case, who chose, uh, even though it's not a, a symbol of their faith, to be commemorated by the same uh, uh, war memorial symbol Uh, that their comrades in arms were also being represented by, choosing as a matter of solidarity for everyone to be represented under the same symbol, that a reasonable observer would understand that this is uh, a way to commemorate and honor those who have uh, sacrificed for this country, not to try and press a specific sectarian religious message. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for giving us so much great constitutional law doctrine. Dear We the People listeners, you must understand there's not a whole lot of doctrine in constitutional law. And when I teach it, I'll just give you the whole thing for free. When when you're uh, studying the 14th Amendment uh, Equal Protection Clause, here's all the doctrine really that you need to know. If a law implicates a suspect classification like race or national origin, it's subject to strict scrutiny, which means that it has to be, the, the, the law has to be necessary to achieve a compelling governmental interest. If it's an ordinary uh, economic legislation, it's subject to what's called rational basis review, which means it has to be uh, rationally related to a legitimate governmental interest. And if it's intermediate scrutiny like gender, then it has to be uh, substantially related to an important governmental interest. See, I I did it from memory, and I gave you that just as I hope will be a delightful bonus because Ken ran through these three First Amendment tests, which are so doctrinal and which lawyers love uh, because you can actually apply the prongs. So, Monica, with apologies for that commercial interruption, (laughs) I would love it if you now could run through the three tests that Ken mentioned. We have the, the mm-hmm. lemon test with its three prongs. We have this Van Orden test, which uh, asks about the perspective of a reasonable observer and, and also uh, asks whether a practice has uh, been subject to challenge over a period of time or not. And then he mentioned the Town of Greece case, which involved a legislative prayer. And the question there was, has the practice in question uh, been uh, compatible with longstanding uh, historical uh, practice. So th- thanks for your thoughts on each of those tests. Yeah, so the Lemon test really it enshrines sort of fundamental precepts of the Establishment Clause. So what the court is saying when it when it enshrined that test in the Lemon case, it was actually going off of the you know decades of jurisprudence prior to Lemon, uh, where the court had looked to you know purpose and said, you know, the Establishment Clause, clearly prohibits the government from acting with a religious motive, like it can't, um, you know, intend to convert its citizens to Christianity. So when the government acts with an unconstitutional, with a with a religious purpose or a motivation, that violates sort of prong one of lemon. Prong two, of course, is that the government can't sponsor religion or, or make it appear to citizens that it's favoring one religion over others. And that's, again, an unquestionable precept of the Establishment Clause that goes back to the court's earliest Establishment Clause cases, that one religion can't be favored over others. And lastly, you get into entanglement, which sometimes overlaps with that second prong about effect, but it does have its own uh, um you know, precepts that that goes to the heart of what the Establishment Clause prevents, which is interference with the with from the government with religion and vice versa. And here we have an instance where the government has spent already over a hundred thousand dollars on this cross through various restoration projects and ongoing maintenance, 
And it's now set aside another $100,000 because the cross is in critical condition. There's cracks. Um, it's crumbling. One of the commission's um, employees said it might just come down on its own during um, deposition. And so we know that we're looking at a lot more entanglement with the government in this massive Christian display. Um, so that's sort of where the three prongs of lemon kind of come into play. The so-called uh, historical test is not a test at all. The court in the town of Greece case looked to whether a, a legislative prayer um, practice that was being done by a local town fit within the tradition that the court had previously upheld in Marsh versus Chambers. That was a 1980s case. So it wasn't applying a test as much as it was saying, can, can a town's uh, prayer practice be consistent with something that we upheld uh, for state and for, for the federal government? And it held that it could. But there was no actual test that the court applied. Um, it was a very unique analysis that hasn't um, you know, been applicable outside of the legislative prayer context. And so here we're just saying, I don't even know how you would apply that because it doesn't, the inquiry was very focused on who's delivering the prayers, what the audience um, is doing in, with respect to the, you know, the government giving the prayers is who's the one giving the prayer. So it's all very focused on prayer and can't really um, apply outside of that. And then lastly, we get to the Van Orden case, um, which again, doesn't actually give us a test. You had a plurality decision, so you had um, a splintered court, and what ended up happening was Justice Breyer provided this um, concurring opinion, which is considered the controlling opinion. But in it, Justice Breyer says that lemon is still very useful, and we're going to continue to apply it in uh, religious display cases. And not only did he say that, he did it. The very same day Van Orden was decided, the Supreme Court, in a majority, applied lemon to strike down another Ten Commandments display uh, which was in the McCreary case, and Justice Breyer was in that majority block. He just said that you know this was almost like a one-off situation. Texas had a Ten Commandments that was in line with about you know 17 monuments and historical markers, all of which were the same size. Um, it had been added to the the display, so unlike the cross here that was proposed and installed in isolation, wasn't until years later other structures were built around it. The Ten Commandments in that case was integrated, and both the plurality, the the justices that um, said, you know, we, we're not sure if we like Lemon. And Justice Breyer agreed that the reason Ten Commandments are sort of different is because they have an undeniable historic meaning tied to our nation, or our, you know, foundations of law and lawmaking. And so when the Ten Commandments are displayed in a legal historical context, which was the case there in Texas, it's less likely to be perceived as, you know, the government putting its hands on religion, unlike something that's you know, a quintessential and the preeminent symbol of Christianity, which is the cross. Um, and and to the point about Jewish soldiers uh, using the cross, it's it's I'm not familiar with very you know that maybe is a, an exception, but the Jewish Welfare Board was um, a staunch opposer of using crosses in overseas uh, uh, graves, and actually testified before Congress saying it was very deeply offensive that some Jewish soldiers' graves were being used uh, with crosses and not stars of David. Um, and the Jewish um, War Veterans Organization has been the plaintiff in many of these cross lawsuits seeking to um, remove federal crosses as war memorials on the basis that they don't represent them. So the general consensus amongst um, you know, Jews and non-Christian groups is that the cross is not representative and does not honor or um, memorialize them in any way. Thank you so much for that. Ken, help us understand how the Supreme Court may approach these 
conflicting tests. Uh, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch have noted the disagreement among the circuits on the question of whether a particular religious symbol would, uh, how it would be perceived by a reasonable observer. Justice Thomas says it's entirely unpredictable whether a given court's hypothetical observer will be any beholder or the average beholder. And the circuits have disagreed as well. The Tenth and Fourth Circuits have understood the reasonable observers an ordinary passerby, but the Third, Sixth, and Eleventh Circuit have uh, rejected uh, this definition and uh, said that the reasonable observer is a person who is presumed to have an understanding of the general history of the display. So, given Justice Thomas's and Gorsuch, uh, Gorsuch's preference for examining the text and original understanding of the clause rather than precedents they think are inconsistent with that, how are they likely to approach this case and how do you think they should approach this case? Well, in fact, Jeff, rather than just focus on those two justices, I'll I'll expand it out to a majority uh, of the court. Uh, If if you look at Town of Greece, which was was written by uh, Justice Kennedy, and that was uh, a 5-4 decision of the court, so five justices on here. Uh, The Obama administration in town of Greece had asked the Supreme Court to only hold that the prayers at issue there were consistent with what the Supreme Court had previously upheld in its 1983 case involving legislative prayer, a case called Marsh v. Chambers. Uh, And the, uh, the Obama administration had said, these prayer practices here are permissible under Marsh. The court should just hold that that is the case and not get into broader issues regarding the Establishment Clause. A majority of the court uh, brushed aside that argument, and they in fact went big. And they noted at the outset, the first thing that they noted is that, yes, the prayers here are consistent with those upheld in Marsh v. Chambers. But rather than just stop with a very short opinion there, uh, Justice Kennedy went on to say, Marsh is sometimes described as carving out an exception to the court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence because it sustained legislative prayer without subjecting the practice to any of the formal tests that have traditionally structured this inquiry. He then goes on later to say, and this is a majority of the court speaking, quote, Marsh must not be understood as permitting a practice that would amount to a constitutional violation if not for its historical foundation. The case teaches instead that the Establishment Clause must be interpreted by reference to historical practices and understanding. Later on in the decision, he goes on to say, the court, the full court goes on to say, any test the court adopts must acknowledge a practice that was accepted by the framers and has withstood the critical scrutiny of time and political change. The court goes on for for a number of pages, and in doing so, it casts serious doubt on this whole reasonable observer concept, this whole endorsement test concept. And it goes on to say that when the court is is reviewing the Establishment Clause, consistent with what it does with other provisions of the Constitution, whether it's a First Amendment provision like the Free Speech Clause or, a, or the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, that the court needs to look to the historical contours of the clause which it goes on to explain that there were historical hallmarks of religious establishments, like laws telling you that you had to attend church on Sunday, laws telling you which church you had to attend, uh, an, uh, a tax system that would be a mandatory tithe 
that's only given to the government's preferred church, government licenses for what teachings you can make and that you would be in risk of fines or even imprisonment if you were teaching a a doctrine other than that which was approved by the government. One of the best-selling books of all time is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He wrote that when he spent years in a British prison because he was teaching doctrines that deviated from those that were authorized by the Church of England. And so in Town of Greece, the court explains, you look at all these historical hallmarks and that in a modern context, it comes down to coercion. Is the government coercing any person to participate in a religious activity that violates their conscience? And when it comes to a passive display like this, no one is making you bow to it. No one's making you pray to it or put money in a box next to it, that there is therefore no coercion. Even though a person might not might think that there's a religious message there, they might decide they don't agree with that religious message. As Justice Kennedy said in Town of Greece, he said, if you're hearing something like a prayer that you disagree with, you may find that offensive. He said, but offense does not equate to coercion. When it comes to the Establishment Clause, what you're looking at is history and whether someone is being coerced. And that that's the line that is drawn. And that that we believe is the correct line of decision. And I believe that that's a a line that the majority of the court, including uh, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, are going to be applying in this case. Thank you so much for that. Monica, do you believe that this coercion test uh, is uh, the correct test to apply? Uh, If the court does embrace it, how dramatic a change in the jurisprudence would that represent? And do you believe the court will embrace this coercion test? So um, my answer is no to to all of that. No, that I don't believe that the Supreme Court will um, embrace, the majority of the Supreme Court won't embrace the coercion test as the um, primary and only test for these kind of cases. And I don't think it's the correct test for several reasons. First of all, the court has repeatedly rejected the notion that coercion is the only value that the Establishment Clause protects. In fact, it said that that's really the role of the Free Exercise Clause. Um, And so if that was the sole purpose for the Establishment Clause, it would be redundant. And this is based off of the court looking back at the the legislative history leading up to the Establishment Clause, the intent of Madison, the intent of Thomas Jefferson, you know, the primary founders of the clause. It goes back to, um, you know, some of the early Supreme Court cases, as I mentioned, Um, And even in the most recent case, I think it was in McCreary, the court specifically said that that coercion alone is not going to be the test in religious display cases. When you get into when you get into town of Greece, the court is saying that in this narrow context of legislative prayer, that's when we're going to say, you know, we're already upholding legislative prayer as even if it's not an exception as something that's not that is religious, but it's not in our normal course of of, um, you know, what we would uphold. Uh, it's saying even then some prayers will still be unconstitutional if there is a pattern of proselytizing or coercion or some evidence to that effect. But it had said that same uh, premise in you know the Marsh decision and other cases, and subsequently used and you know turned back to Lemon after the Marsh case when it looked to um, that more narrow view. And in the um, Town of Greece case, Justice Kennedy relies heavily on his concurrence in the Allegheny decision. And then his concurrence in the Allegheny decision 
specifically said that he had no doubt that, uh, you know, the Establishment Clause prohibits the government from erecting a large, permanent, massive, you know, Latin cross on City Hall. And he used that example specifically. And he said he would find that unconstitutional even if he didn't apply Lemon, because it would be an obvious effort to proselytize on behalf of a particular faith. And an underlying principle in the legislative prayer cases, as well as the Ten Commandments cases, is the notion that Yes, our history does accept and acknowledge some general references to God or theism, um, but when it comes to promoting re- Christianity specifically or one religion over another, that's when the line is crossed. And Justice Scalia, who's one of the um, you know st- narrow, he's always advocated a narrow view of the Establishment Clause and a very originalist view. Even he recognized the distinction between symbols that you know recognize uh, you know that are embraced by multiple different religions, like the Ten Commandments, what has been embraced by Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. He found that that's consistent with our historical understandings. Whereas he said that you know a reference to Jesus Christ or something more sectarian is not consistent with our history and uh, with the Establishment Clause's general principle against prohibiting the government from favoring one religion over at the, another. And I think that's really um, where the line is drawn. And so, so because this is such a potent sectarian symbol, something that the justices have consistently recognized is something different than a generic symbol or something that's benign, like a prayer, um, you know, a legislative prayer that's delivered by a local um, citizen and not even the government, there's a big difference between the two. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Ken, as Monica suggests, uh, the court might see a difference between a cross and the Ten Commandments. On the other hand, it might decide the case narrowly. As you suggested, uh, the city of Maryland is supported by a bipartisan coalition, which includes liberals and conservatives. How do you imagine the liberal justices will see this case? And could we imagine Justices Kagan and Breyer joining the conservatives as they did in the 7-2 Trinity Lutheran case with Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor in dissent. And if you were to see a 7-2 decision, uh, what would it look like? Oh, I, those are great questions, Jeff. And, and not only could, could I see a 7-2 victory uh, for the American Legion here, I could see potentially a 9-0 unanimous victory like we had in Hosanna Tabor in 2012. Uh, That was an issue where a lot of commentators at the time were thinking this could be a 5-4 decision. It could go either way. Instead, it was a 9-0 decision, not just with Justices Breyer and Kagan, uh, but also with Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor, where the court held that it was unconstitutional uh, for the EEOC to apply a federal anti-discrimination law uh, against uh, against a church school telling them Uh, who the teachers had to be in it, a ministerial exception uh, to federal non-discrimination laws. I think here that the coercion issue, far from seeing it as redundant, uh, I actually think it's the common denominator for the First Amendment. Uh, Coercion is the touchstone for compelled speech under the Free Speech Clause. It's the touchstone for restrictions on speech under the Free Speech Clause. Uh, It is the touchstone for the Free Exercise Clause when the government is telling you that you cannot exercise your own faith. And conversely, it is also the touchstone for the Establishment Clause where the government is choosing its own faith and then coercing citizens to participate in it. So I think what we see here in town of Greece, far from some sort of one-off anomaly, and again, I think that Justice Kennedy made it explicit at the outset of the decision that this was not any sort of set-aside, I think it instead reintegrates the Establishment Clause 
with the entirety of the First Amendment, the six clauses of the First Amendment, all of which turn to one degree or other uh, on this concept of coercion and the historical hallmarks from the founding to the present of where we see that being relevant. Now, if I move on also, as you said, to the Ten Commandments, I would actually say that the religious message here is uh, is less than you would find with the Ten Commandments. I believe the Ten Commandments are fully constitutional uh, as well, and I think it's the plurality opinion in Van Orden that put forward the, the right rule of decision there. Uh, but in that case, you have big, bold print. You know, I am the Lord thy God. You shall have no other uh, gods before me. The the plaintiffs in those Ten Commandments cases were, were making— the same arguments that my friend Monica is making today, they were making those same arguments against the Ten Commandments in those 2005 cases. And again, in Van Orden, uh, five of the justices didn't buy it. There were also a version of those same arguments made in Town of Greece itself, the plaintiffs there noting that almost all of the prayer givers in the Town of Greece were Christian. Many of the prayers, in fact, most of the prayers, made sectarian references to Jesus Christ. And all of these issues about this, this sectarian message, those were actually the lead arguments in town of Greece. The Supreme Court heard all of those arguments, and they rejected them. Uh, and in fact, if you read the dissenting, one of the dissenting opinions in town of Greece, written by Justice Elena Kagan, she makes exactly those same points that you're hearing from my friend today. Those were made in dissent in town of Greece. You can read that in the second part of the opinion. And so I think the Supreme Court as a whole has heard these arguments before. They did not buy them in the context of legislative prayer. And I don't think they're going to buy them with respects to this longstanding passive war memorial either. Uh, Monica, what is your uh, response to that claim that the court has been more tolerant of religious symbols that have been up for a long time and seem to have historic sanction, that even the liberal justices have joined the conservatives in upholding them? And, and uh, you, you know, what, what do you want to say to we, the people, listeners, about why these longstanding historical monuments do, in fact, violate the Establishment Clause in, in your view and, and why you think they should be struck down? Sure. I mean, the Supreme Court has never said that, you know, history alone is a basis for upholding an otherwise unconstitutional display or practice. In fact, that's exactly what we heard earlier today when the Supreme Court said in town of Greece that it wasn't upholding legislative prayer simply because it was old. It was actually looking to a lot of other variables, and one of which was the notion that, um, you know, Congress just days after passing the First Amendment was engaged in the practice of legislative prayer, the very specific practice. And the reason it was upheld was had a lot to do with the fact that it was an internal practice and it is to remain an internal practice for the benefit of lawmakers. Um, and so when, and this, the court says this in town of Greece, when a practice starts becoming a public practice, when there's evidence that the government is actually doing, you know, legislative prayer to promote religious observance among the public, for instance, if it says everyone stand, let's all say our prayer, uh, you know, does the sign of the cross, has the government doing these gestures towards the citizenry versus, you know, doing a prayer for themselves, um, that's where even a legislative prayer will cross the line. The court also said that this is, um, you know, a benign acknowledgement to religion. Yes, there might be more Christian prayers here, but that was a product of demographics. Uh, the county had a practice of non-discrimination, and the Supreme Court specifically said, we're upholding legislative prayer here because it is a non-discriminatory practice. Anyone can give a, an invocation, including an atheist. And, that, and the court was really specific to say that if a practice 
over time looks like it's denigrating non-believers or is preferring some religions over others, that's going to be unconstitutional. And that's even in the, in the narrow legislative prayer context. Here again, we have a massive 40-foot Christian cross that represents Christians to the exclusion of everyone else. It's not a benign reference to religion. It's not monotheistic or it's not a product of um, you know, a private fleeting prayer. It is a massive permanent Christian cross that's, that people pass by on a daily basis in the middle of a busy intersection. So this is much more like a promotion of religion to the public. It's not an internal act. It's not benign. Um, you know, as Judge Wynn said in his uh, concurring opinion in the de- uh, in the denial of the en banc, he said it's very offensive to him as a Christian to say that this is anything but a Christian symbol. It denigrates the religious meaning of the cross to call it anything other than Christian. Um, and some have said that the use of a cross as a, uh, you know for military purposes is um, blasphemous, and it actually you know, co-op spiritual content for government purposes in a way that they feel is inconsistent with what Jesus Christ would have, um, you know, represented to them. So I think, you know, this just goes to the heart of why government and religion um, really should remain in their, their um, separate spheres, especially when uh, the government's using such a potently sectarian symbol for, um, you know, honoring veterans. Many thanks for that. Um, and, and Ken, from from the other side, what would you say to listeners who uh, wonder whether this coercion test that you're advocating really would represent a dramatic change in the court's jurisprudence and might open the door to non-coercive prayer, uh, which the court has uh, previously rejected. Uh, and in the course of answering that, you might give us your thoughts about whether Justice Kavanaugh is likely to view these questions differently than Justice Kennedy did. Uh, sure. To make sure I understand your question, what's your reference to uh, non-coercive prayer opening the door to that? Well, uh, in in upholding in, in striking down school prayer in the Abingdon case, and then in in striking down uh, graduation uh, prayer, oh, sure. uh, Justice Justice Kennedy has said that even prayer that's ostensibly voluntary may as- effectively be coercive because of the social pressure that kids feel to participate. And and the, and the question is whether the coercion test you're advocating would would change that uh, right and uh, and I think if we look at those uh, three uh, if we look at those three cases uh, you have uh, uh, Engel versus Vital in uh, in 1963 regarding school prayer you have the Lee versus Weissman regarding high school graduation ceremonies prayers there in 1992 and then the Santa Fe case involving prayers at Friday night football games in the year 2000. Uh, each of those were uh, each of those were divided uh, decisions. Lee versus Lee, for example, was a was a five to four decision. So I think some of the justices might consider it a close call when there are children present. And this was heavily briefed in the town of Greece issue because at the Supreme Court level, uh, the 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 central thrust of the plaintiff's argument was that under Levy-Weissman, these local prayers were people who were appearing before the commissioners that the commissioners could clearly see whether they were participating in the prayers, whether they were perhaps uh, uh, or rejecting the prayer opportunity, that that was inherently coercive. Uh, that argument was centrally made in town of Greece. It looks like Justice Kennedy, who of course is now retired uh, from the court, Justice Kennedy was careful to draw a line for coercion between adults and children. Uh, And he goes on in other cases, especially in the free speech context, to say that adults in American society need to be expected 
to hear and to be able to tolerate or see expressions of faith or expressions of anything, perhaps political ideas that they disagree with and need to learn to tolerate that. But that children, when they're subjected to, to uh, uh, in a captive audience scenario, to a religious expression, that children, unlike adults, can feel coerced in terms of peer pressure to be able to participate. So otherwise put, Justice Kennedy said, peer pressure is coercive for children in a public school context, but not for adults in society at large. And so I think that a majority of the court will clearly understand the limits to that coercion uh, principle there. So all of those prayer cases, I would say, were still about coercion. It's just that Justice Kennedy uh, disagreed with some of his conservative colleagues on this issue, that the coercion line moves when you're talking about children uh, in public school. Now, in terms of how that would play out in the larger context, could you repeat the, the rest of your question? Uh, the question is whether Justice Kavanaugh might approach this differently than Justice Kennedy, and, and more directly, whether five justices on this court might interpret coercion uh, more more strictly than Justice Kennedy did and, and allow for uh, school prayer, even for kids, uh, as long as it's not uh, formally coercive. In that regard, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, of course, is not yet at the Supreme Court level weighed in uh, on an Establishment Clause case. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to speculate as to exactly where he might uh, share the view or differ from the view uh, of Justice Kennedy in that regard. I do believe that uh, that whether he has the same view or a different view, uh, even under Justice Kennedy's view, I do not think that this would be regarded as coercive in a constitutional sense. And again, I think if we look at cases like the Janus case from the end of last term, uh, uh, various free speech cases where Justice Kennedy has unpacked these coercion contexts, uh, uh, these coercion principles, in a different context, I do believe that Justice Kennedy, and we saw this also in the Citizens United case in 2010, where he said the solution to speech you disagree with is more speech, not less. It is not to silence the voices you disagree with. It is to have a free opportunity to express your own competing voice that contradicts the voice that you disagree with. So I think that Justice Kennedy and what we've seen with the majority of the court uh, is that this is that it's not the role uh, of the government to shelter people, to shelter at least adults in society at large from being exposed to ideas or concepts that they might disagree with. And I think that that broader coercion context uh, would not apply uh, those coercion tripwires don't apply anywhere uh, in this context. I think even in, for example, even in the legislative prayer uh, context, the en banc Sixth Circuit, meaning all the judges of the Sixth Circuit, uh, just a little over a year ago, in a case I was involved with, it was a county out of Michigan, where the presiding officer would say, please stand and assume a reverent position, would say that to the room. And the, the full Sixth Circuit said that that's not coercive either, that that kind of even broad inviting language where you're not threatening some sort of adverse government action if you don't. But even that sort of 
inviting language to maintain uh, to maintain decorum and respect, which people can choose to reject without, of course, without any threat of punishment, that even those sorts of expressions do not cross the line for coercion, especially not when you're talking about grown adults. I mean, America is about advanced citizenry. I mean, a democratic system involves people hearing things every day that they might disagree with and even disagree with strongly. But that doesn't mean it is the role of unelected judges to come in and shelter everyone from expressions or sites that they might not personally agree with. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Monica, a version of the same question for you, and then we'll have closing arguments. Are you concerned that this new court with the addition of Justice Kavanaugh might embrace a version of the coercion test, which allowed for more prayer and more public religious expression than the Supreme Court has previously tolerated? You know, it's obviously hard to say, but we actually do have some indication that uh, Justice Kavanaugh is um, looking at religious displays differently than, uh, say, other ceremonial deistic practices, such as, you know, Ngabi Trust and the motto. And that comes from his um, concurring decision in Newdow versus Roberts. And there he actually goes out of his way to say that, unlike these um, practices like legislative prayer or Ngabi Trust, he says, because of their fixed qualities, displays have caused somewhat more concern than spoken words, which by their nature are fleeting. And he cites to um, several opinions, one of which is Justice Kennedy's de uh, concurring decision in Allegheny, which I spoke of earlier, where Justice Kennedy said, and this quote is provided in Kavanaugh's um, opinion, I do not doubt, doubt, for example, that the Establishment Clause forbids a city to permit the permanent erection of a large Latin cross on, a, on the roof of City Hall, this is not because the government speech about religion is per se suspect, as the majority would have it, but because such an obtrusive year-round religious display would place the government's weight behind an obvious effort to proselytize on behalf of a particular religion. And so we know that's Kennedy's view, and now we have you know, Justice uh, Kavanaugh putting that in the concurring opinion where he's distinguishing, um, you know, again, a benign religious practice, something you know, referencing God to um, a permanent religious display like the cross. So I think it's definitely going to, um, you know, I don't think we can say for certain which way any of the justices will go, but I do think that there's an indication that they're not, um, you know, all going to be on board with this, you know, just looking at coercion versus, um, you know, some other test or, or just the government's, um, you know, preference. I mean, yes, the government um, doesn't need to shelter citizens from um, religious symbols or um, things that might be offensive to them, but certainly the government can't place its hands on the scales and and be the one promoting those um, religions or putting those displays up on government property. And I think that's where um, the rubber meets the road for that. So um, you know, we'll we'll have to see where they land. But I do think that just consistent with all the other establishment clause cases, I think the most likely outcome will be something narrow that um, you know won't necessarily apply um, outside of the religious display setting. It might not even apply to other crosses. So um, we'll just have to, you know, present our arguments and see um, how, how the courts rule. Thank you so much for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this wonderful uh, and illuminating discussion. And Ken, the first one is to you. And the question is the obvious one. Do you believe that the Bladenburg Peace Cross violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, and why should the we, we the People listeners care about this case? 
Uh, Jeff, uh, the Bladensburg World War I Veterans Memorial is completely consistent with the U.S. Constitution under any of the tests that the U.S. Supreme Court has applied over the years in terms of what sort of line uh, amounts to an establishment of religion in violation of the First Amendment. Whether it is the history and coercion standard that the court recently brought to the fore in, uh, in Town of Greece versus Galloway, which we believe is the correct rule of decision, or if it is uh, the approach that the court used in Van Orden v. Perry in 2005, or even the lemon test, either the original lemon from 1971 or its endorsement test variation, the reasonable observer test from 1989, under any of those approaches, uh, we would agree that, as the district court judge said in this case, under any of those tests, this is fully consistent with the Establishment Clause. And I don't believe this is a close case either. I believe a solid majority of the court will conclude that an almost century-old passive war memorial, uh, 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 indistinguishable in critical regards from countless other war memorials, both here in the U.S. and around the world, are fully consistent with the Establishment Clause that the Constitution permits uh, the honoring of those who have given their lives in defense of this country. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Monica, last word to you. Do you believe that the Bladenburg Peace Cross violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, and why should we, the people listeners, care about this case? Sure. The uh, Bladensburg Cross, the 40-foot Latin cross that towers over the busiest intersection in Prince George's County, clearly violates the Establishment Clause, um, I would argue, under any of the tests that the court has applied to date, and that includes Justice Breyer's concurrence in Van Orden. Um, it's dominating its surroundings. There's no other cross that's like this that we're aware of. The Arlington crosses um, are in the context of a cemetery. They're smaller and they're not by any means the dominant um, displays in that context. And they're surrounded by religious symbols um, representing individual soldiers of many different faiths. Whereas here, real Christianity is singularly and exclusively represented. Um, and that's backed by, um, like I said, over $100,000 in government funds, and which potentially can be, um, you know, another $100,000 just to restore it. So um, I think that the Supreme Court will look at this, um, you know, not just as a benign or historic um, display, but one that is potently sectarian, that doesn't represent everyone. And I think that's really the, the core principle here is the government's neutrality with respect to religion and whether this giant Christian cross is con consistent with the government's um, requirement that it, it maintain a neutral stance when it comes to religious matters. So um, for that reason, I do think it would violate the Establishment Clause. Thank you so much, Monica Miller and Ken Klukowski, for an illuminating, educational, and deep discussion of this crucially important First Amendment case. Thank you for spreading light about the meaning of the Establishment Clause and helping our listeners make up their own mind about the central meaning of religious freedom and the Constitution. Ken, Monica, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for having us, Jeff. Yes, thank you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. 
please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find this great constitutional content. Recommend the show to your friends and colleagues. Also, check out our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. It's this great audio feed of all the phenomenal programs that we are running here in Philadelphia and around the country, just as rich as We the People, but it's live. So how can you resist the opportunity to continue your constitutional education? And always, dear friends, remember, as you wake and as you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we are entirely made possible by the passion, engagement, support, and thirst for lifelong learning that all of you are demonstrating by listening to We the People. So if you haven't done it yet, go to the website, go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, click on it, and join at any level just so you can become a member of the National Constitution Center family and support our crucial work, which is to spread constitutional light. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.